for me, this isn't just theory. I mean, I, I combine whatever theories or brilliant ideas I've learned over the years, of course. But I also know that it's not that complicated to help someone else or help yourself get to higher ground. It's not that complicated. We are wired for that. And we are back for another episode this week. And you know what? One thing I can never take for granted is the vulnerability and the openness that my guests show week in, week out. And today is no different. My guest is a marriage and family therapist. She is the creator of the award-winning nonprofit, The Narrative Method, which we delve into. That focuses on subjects around relationships and meaningful connections. She's a sort of after commentator and it's been featured in things like Huffington Post, Women's Health, Shondaland, LA Weekly, and so much more. She's a wife, she's a mother, and she's an improv artist, which is actually where we pick up today's episode. We explore things around the skill and willingness to risk things not working out. We explore how she had to read body language from a young age to survive talk about communication, curiosity, how the fear of rejection held her back in the entertainment industry, the power of storytelling. But let's delve into improvisation and how did she actually get into that? Welcome to today's episode of Everyday Leadership. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of sitting down with an award-winning marriage and family therapist and the creator of um, the narrative method. We're going to delve a lot into TNM and what's that about, but she's someone who's um, highly sought after and a lot of subjects around relationship and meaningful connections. She has a lot of commentary and write-ups in various publications from Harvard Post to Shondaland to LA Weekly. And she is also a wife, a mother, a professor. So you can see the range we're talking about here and an improvisational artist, which I was so curious about that. So in fact, I'm actually going to, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to start there. Improvisation. How did she get into that? I got into it because as a child, I couldn't have things. So for instance, I wanted to learn how to dance. No, couldn't learn how, you know, the answer to everything was no money. No, there was never like a sense of resourcefulness. So at a very young age, I realized, okay, if I can't have everything, then this is going to be my instrument. And nobody can take it away from me, even if I'm in jail. That's what I thought. It takes an abused kid to go to that extent, but mm. whatever. That's where I was. And so I discovered at a very young age, I could make people laugh. I was willing to use myself to be silly. And so my skill and willingness to risk, you know, things not working grew to the point where before everybody had a video camera, I was going out on the street, I would have to get a a camera person, you know, just like talk them into this very cool idea. And they would just follow me around and I would just make stuff up on the street with people. stood in front of a newsstand and I yelled, free advice, free advice. And then people would come up to me and I would give them free advice. A guy goes something like, well, so what do I do when my girlfriend just won't stop talking? So I know to say to her, whoa, 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 Missy, 
let me get a word in edgewise. I mean, <laughs> thank you very much. Free advice. Free advice. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, I was in my 30s. <laughs> that takes a lot of courage and bravery, though, just to, be able to put yourself out there and just do that. It takes more bravery not to, you know, really, because the, the pain of wanting to connect and make people laugh and just feel with people and experience and be alive with people, that is far more scary to live with unexpressed than it is to risk that somebody rolls their eyes or says that's not. I don't tend to feel that vulnerable in being funny. I feel incredibly vulnerable singing. You know, I mean, I can sing, you know, some little ditty, but if I'm going to really go to a deep place, that's more vulnerable. That's more scary. That's more core truth, you know? Making people laugh is just a what kiss. What done. Yeah. It was a way to survive. You know, a best sometimes, you know, my father would have this look and sweat on his upper lip when he was about to blow. And I learned to read body language really young. And sometimes, if I was funny, I could change his energy. I mean, it was a survival tool for sure, but it's also fun in its own right. So that's how it underscores everything that I do, because the importance of humor when you're dealing with your most profound and difficult feelings cannot be underestimated. You need the perspective and the relief and release that you get when you look how messed up this situation is. And then you pull back and you see it in a completely different, benign context, and you're better. You didn't solve one problem yet, but you're better because you're out of that loop. And when you can get out of a loop of thinking about something in one way, you find answers. How can you then start to, I guess, what you're talking about is a reframe or look at things from a different perspective or even interrupt, part interrupt? and interrupt the different thoughts that we have. How can you start to do that if that's not something you are so used to doing? Because the natural default state is when things go wrong, we just tend to think deeper and deeper and deeper and sink into it rather than doing exactly what you just said and take a step back and look at it from a different perspective. So what are some tools or tricks you've learned? It's really easy. And I can give you some tools too, but all you really have to do is ask yourself this. Is that the only thing that's true here? So let's say uh, you just put a lot of effort into something that you had hoped to sell and your buyer said no. I mean, obviously, this is very general. So after I finish freaking out that I put all that time and money and lost money and then this happened and she said that and they did that and why did they and they and them and then and then I start beating myself up, of course. But after I've decided that the whole thing was a waste of time, I could also say to myself, is that all that's true? And after I relax a little bit, I might realize, well, I can't deny that I learned how to put together that package, that I developed this relationship with them, that it's ready to go and pitch to the next person, and that I feel like I did everything with integrity. And at the end of the day, I can sleep at night and I feel good about myself for that. So whatever those things are, it doesn't have to be in a big example. It's just until we start putting into practice self-compassion 
in the smallest ways, the way you would treat the child whose hand you're holding. If a child hurts themselves, are you going to yell at them? You hurt yourself. I told you you would. That's stupid. You know, that's what we do to ourselves. You're such an idiot. You can't do it. You're fun. fun. You always think. Blah, 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 blah. Hang on a minute. Hang on. It's your little baby. You are your little baby. You're your little baby. And those wounded parts are so vulnerable. So the big you, the most developed part of you, shouldn't bully them. Just be nice to them. They didn't become defenses for nothing. They just didn't know what else to do. It was so hard. So scary. What if the inner you, that inner child, grew up, we touched on this briefly, grew up in abusive environments where you were yelled at and that's what you did get when you were a child and therefore you just carry that pattern but you keep on doing it to yourself. You're looking at them. And that's why, for me, this isn't just theory. I mean, I, I combine whatever theories or brilliant ideas I've learned over the years, of course. But I also know that it's not that complicated to help someone else or help yourself get to higher ground. It's not that complicated. We are wired for that. We are wired to provide that comfort to each other just by saying, tell me about it. What happened? And when you listen to someone's story from their perspective, not based on your assumptions or worrying about how unbelievably stupid that was and that you wouldn't do that, you know, put that aside. You can be a genius somewhere else. Right now, just feel it the way they feel it. And it will almost always make sense. I mean, I've sat with people who've been in and out of jail for terrible crimes. And when you hear their stories or the way they think, it may not be healthy. You may not really be able to identify with those choices. But there's almost always a reasoning that you can understand. And if someone it has the love beat out of them, they will respond and, you know, they'll at least beat it out of themselves. As you said, they'll just carry it on. But they may act it out on other people. What age did you discover a way to look at what you went through from a different perspective? I would say different things at different times. I mean, sometimes now every day I'll have a realization of something and just think like, I cannot, like everybody else knows that, right? And I'm just figuring this out. So there's always that. But I think, you know, you learn things in disjointed ways. And that's, that's one of the reasons that people are fascinating, I think, because, and that's why children are so funny. They say such funny things because they didn't get the rest of the information. One time my kid was about four years old, gobbling up a piece of cake. And I said, if you think you're going to eat the rest of that without giving me a bite, you've got another thing coming. She looks up, she goes, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's so sweet and delicious. That's so fascinating. And we have to remember that when we're trying to share our position with someone else, if they're not quite getting it, it may not just be a matter of resistance. It may not even be that you're not explaining it well. 
But if you could imagine going inside someone else's head, like you've already seen other people's desks and, you know, the way they organize physical things. What would it be like to try and find a clear space for you to enter somebody's mind with your idea all digested to really impact them the way that you're hoping it will? A lot. Hmm. I guess it's about meeting people where they are and then seeing ways where you can communicate in ways that they can understand, which takes time and patience. And I think there are times when we get impatient really, really quickly because like, you should just get this. You should understand this. I've explained it so many different times. (laughs) So, but the, and here's the thing about that. If you told them a hundred times and they still didn't get it, you didn't tell them a hundred times. They may hear the words, they may get what you want, but the reason they're not really getting it or responding in a way that's satisfying to you is the thing that you need to talk about and not with blame, with curiosity. So if I tell you, I want you to be here at exactly six o'clock and you keep coming back at 6.05, what is that for you? Well, okay, you want to know what it is? I don't like you're telling me what I have to do. Oh, really? Okay, I'm so sorry. How can I say that better? I don't know. Just say that you'll be ready at six o'clock and I'll be there as soon as I can. Seriously? Okay. Some things are not that big a deal. Some things are tone. I love you. I really love you. Really? (laughs) Words are 7%. I don't know how somebody calculated this, but people seem to agree that words make up very little of the communication. It's really body language facial expressions, which are different between cultures. So there's body language at times, you know, and it's just like any other cultural ignorance that can be an insult if you're not sensitive. If you don't just say, I'm not clear what you mean. Can you explain that in another way? Why are we afraid to ask for clarification that you'll think I'm stupid or that you'll find out that I'm stupid? That's a big one. That's a big fear that a lot of people have of being seen or perceived as not knowing something when you feel like either you feel like you should or you don't want to give that other person that satisfaction that you don't so you don't ask the questions or you just make assumptions how many times have i said in a group of people who i thought were fascinating talking about something i was curious about and then assuming that they're way beyond me is their field or whatever I don't ask a question that I am curious about. So I stop my potential to learn right there. So sad. But at least, and here's what else is true other than it's so sad. It's wonderful that I've been able to identify that, that I've been able to say it out loud for the benefit, not just of taking the sting out of it for myself, but sharing it with other people in case it resonates. I've shared this now with a lot of people and it feels good. Because it feels like I'm giving you something real. My own vulnerability. Not wanting to be perceived as stupid. So what are the things that people can do to get over their fear or step past that to ask those questions, to be willing to look stupid, which most of the time ends up being a story we've told ourselves? 
but you need to get past that to be able to understand that that's not reality of it. I would say if you can get in the habit of every time you notice being harsh on yourself, really cruel to yourself, like sometimes, you know, we have these kind of inner office memos between ourselves inside. And sometimes it's just like a feeling like, oh, and that may be attached to something in particular, or I don't know, sometimes it's just a shudder. Other times you almost hear the words, you know, you suck, who do you think you're kidding? You know, you're sometimes it's, you know, a guilt trippy voice, but whatever those things are that derail you or derail your confidence or your train of thought, whenever you notice them, no matter how small, force yourself to just stop, just stop for a moment, take a beat and notice it. Notice what it is with curiosity, not with blame. I wonder why that came up right now. Oh, because I'm taking a risk. I'm putting myself out on a limb in that defense that is trying to protect me from becoming embarrassed and saying, stop. But I have to tell the defense, I'm the adult here. I've got it. Thank you. I don't really need you the way I did when I was a child. So you stop. And then there's a way to connect with yourself in an instant. You can do it anywhere. Put your dominant hand on your heart, and once you connect to your heart beating, you feel integrated. So, me, the dominant me, is in control, but from the inside, you feel the, that parent almost soothing you, and that fearful part can relax, and it's just a way of centering yourself in a moment. It's not the only way. Some people can, you know, might want to breathe or meditate or or do whatever works for you. But just as long as you stop every single time that something abusive happens within you, just the way you would if you were a parent and your kids were, you know, fighting. What else is true? Oh, look at how scared I must be if that defensive part is telling me I'll never be anything. Really? Come on. Sometimes I like to give people an ironic challenge, right? Which would be like, okay, so look in the mirror and say to yourself a million times over and over, you'll never be nothing. You'll never be nothing. And, you know, my father used to say that to me. And you can't sort of help but laugh because it's so absurd once you take it out and open it up. When we keep these feelings and fears and insecurities pushed down and hidden. They have way more perceived power. But they're just thoughts. From your dad telling you you've never been nothing to deciding to move to LA to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. When you put those two things together, it's a massive shift. For you not, one, owning or believing that statement and two, you then being a, I'm going to go into the entertainment industry of all industries and step into that to become something and do something different what was that i guess that journey like for you working in that space or that time for that period well first of all there was nothing to lose i wasn't leaving anything behind there was no love or financial security or caring or interest so you know leaving something behind is a risk so that was okay but from the time I think I was a child, I've had a combination of 
real, really tremendous confidence and tremendous insecurity. In equal measure. You know, not equal measure, but in the moments when, you know, insecurity is raining, then, you know, I'm not worried about the other times. I'm just feeling like, oh. but I have to say it is less and less in my life because everything is designed for me to talk with people all the time. And the more you share true things with other people, just the more comfortable you are handling what comes at you. It's like, I think of it as my desktop. If things are in folders, I can find them. If things are all over the place, I can't even find my thought. So if you can clear things up as they happen, that helps. Other things just remain out of reach and it becomes a lifelong process, whatever that issue might be. That's okay. So my journey in show business. So on one hand, I was like so bold. I mean, the guerrilla improv and lots of different things I did. I was in bands. I recorded. I wrote television, wrote radio. And in all the things that I did, I never had an agent because I was too afraid. I rarely had auditions because I was too afraid. So I, that's how I just wound up being in, in the underground because I could just get around those kinds of normalities and rules. What are you afraid of? Uh, being rejected, being told I sucked, or I guess I was a goddamn dummy and I'll never be nothing or whatever, you know, those kinds of, you know, to this, not that enough, you know, didn't fit in. And, and you know, when I was younger, the requirements for women to work, and I do need to acknowledge that women of color pretty much never worked, but uh, for women of my generation to work, you had to be, you know, for the most part, blonde hair, blue eyed, 100 pounds, blah, 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 blah. And I was none of those things. This is hair dye and my eyes are brown. I was just not that physical type. So I was had to compensate for that by being outrageous. And that's what helped me find who I really am. So that's good. So what was behind the, you moving from or leaving the STEM industry to going to clinical psychology? I was working on a late night dating show and it was really fun and I was making good money and we would just all, you know, all the writers, we would just laugh and, and have a good time. And I would get to sit in for the host and the rehearsals. And I just, I had so many fun things satisfied in doing this. But we were talking about something one day with this fast banter that is very much like a fun thing in showbiz because there are so many people with great senses of humor. And all of a sudden it was like, this doesn't matter. What am I doing? So I had left college because I worked one day on a movie. I had left college to come to LA. A guy on a movie who had a card that said A period, D period, which stood for assistant director. I don't know what that meant. He gave me his card. He said, well, if you're ever in Hollywood, so I quit school. So all these years later, after I realized, you know what? I'm going back. I'm going to finish my BA. And as soon as I started school, I realized, no, I'm going to become a therapist. I'd, I'd always sort of carried that fantasy as well. That's what got me there. And now I just combine all of it. It's all one, it's all one offering. 
Hmm. I guess we'll just flow back into the narrative method. And for those who don't know, what is the narrative method? Well, we're part of the human connection movement. And as such, we create programs, experiences, and products like decks of cards and things of that nature that connect people through sharing the stories of their lives. That's essentially it. So whether we're working with a company or a university or individuals, we offer free Zoom-ins every week. People just show up and in some we share our stories verbally and others, we, they're writing groups. But simply through sharing our stories, telling our stories, and feeling heard, we experience our mutual humanity create new meanings, break through the limitations of our beliefs about each other, and forget change each other's minds. Forget that. That ain't happening. It doesn't have to happen. But when we discover similarities amidst extreme differences, then we have something. And this is what we can and must build on. We're not that different. We just have very, very different influences and allegiances. Why is storytelling so powerful to build connection? Well, first of all, we're hardwired for stories. Every culture throughout time has depended on stories. This is how we hook up. It's like, you know, technology without a charger, you know. When we hook up, we feel known and we get to know other people. But stories have also passed down everything from information to worries to how to live, how to cook, what's danger, you know, all of the stories that are essential to continue to develop a culture. In a way, I guess even animals have a way of maybe not through what we would think of as a traditional story, but the way they teach their children. So... When we live in a time as we do now, where you can be very alienated and share only information with people and have relationships be only transactional, the loneliness that that evokes is dangerous. For one thing, when we're isolated, we only have the thoughts that happen in between our own head, and they just go back and forth and back and forth. And some of them, may develop, but the negative ones without getting air (laughs) tend to just become negative loops. So, you know, when you're working on something and you're kind of stuck, and even though you feel that you should continue sitting there, but you get up, maybe just get up to get a cup of coffee, or maybe you go out and do something else. But you instantly realize a change of scenery gives me another, a fresh view. And so in that same way, every time we step out of our own thinking and put it aside to be present for someone else, we are filling ourselves up in the greatest way. So it's just a mutual way to continue the humanistic call to improve ourselves individually, as a species, and as a universe I'm going with. Storytelling also requires a lot of vulnerability. I know when I think back to when I've shared my story on stage or even in, in teams who I've, I've been leading, they're very, very powerful, but it requires a level of 
me being willing to risk sharing a side of myself with sometimes strangers or other people around me so they can get to know a bit better. What are the ways that people can, I guess, break down or foster more vulnerability that allow them to be able to share some of those powerful stories and to experience that connection as you just described? I love that question. My first thought about this is you have to have a deal with yourself. And again, hand to heart is really good. And you say to yourself the way a good parent would say to their child, you never, never have to reveal anything that makes you feel unsafe. And better to stay feeling safe than give something away that you don't really have to give. So once you say that to yourself, or once you say that to people in a group, they just open up. Because you've made it okay to be who you are. And who you are make it very comfortable telling all this stuff to some, somebody in one circumstance and not in another. And you can still talk about the very same thing with that depth of vulnerability if it doesn't feel safe to you. We have to trust our instincts. There are people or times or circumstances that aren't safe. Is it being recorded? Where is that recording going? Is it going to be used out of context? Whatever those spheres are. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to also know that regardless of what someone does with my words, if they take them out of context, those words, those comments that are said, whether they're in print or on tape or whatever, or in someone else's head, are not me. They don't have me to hurt or help, arguably. I am in charge of myself and my real vulnerability. What people decide to do, hopefully it'll be kind, but if it's not, that still isn't me. We just really, unfortunately, in a, in a time like this, where people can get canceled, for saying something innocent without being given a chance to explain themselves. I think we need to have that understanding with ourselves as well, because sometimes the world's wrong. Understanding yourself, that's a, that's a really big one. For the last two years in particular with the pandemic and people being at home, I've had a lot of conversations around introspection. And it's also brought up a lot of, I guess, fears and insecurities that people have, which we have masked using the noise of the world, either being busy, traveling, doing all sorts of things. When all that's taken away from you and that noise decreases and you're left with your thoughts, it brings out a lot of insecurities and fears that you have around yourself. And with what you're talking about right now, which is around that that inner you and you recognizing that those inner yous and being able to tap into that and use that to build connection while recognizing your boundaries around safety and all that. I guess my question to you based on your experience is how do you be open and vulnerable when you don't have a complete understanding of yourself? Again, this is another fantastic question. I don't know that we can be laissez-faire about unfinished business because you don't really have a handle on it. That's the stuff that usually feels the most vulnerable to share. And that's the stuff that you shouldn't feel compelled to talk about publicly because you're still working it out. 
And once you've got a bead on it, it does feel less vulnerable. Oh, okay. Because you can sort of file it somewhere. You can put it somewhere. When I say file, I don't mean file it, you know, and forget about it. But in other words, we have these schemas in our minds. You know, this goes with the subject of uh, trees, and this goes with the subject about vulnerability around things my father said to me, whatever. If you can understand from a large enough perspective that you feel soothed, then that subject can sort of quiet down. When it's still nagging at you, I don't know, you really have to ask yourself, why am I feeling compelled to discuss it with other people? Now, if it is the subject of your work and the vulnerability comes around an experience that happened or, or something like that, well, then you can still talk about the work. But I would always reserve the right. And even it's very honest and fine to say to somebody, you know, when it comes to my feelings around that, I am still conflicted. I'm still working it out. I don't really know how to, you know, wrap up my feelings around that. Nothing wrong with saying that. It's true. It's deep. We also know that when, we, when we're trying to figure things out and we share them with trusted people, trusted advisors, just randomly, it helps us to be able to process things a lot better and not clearer sometimes. Not always, but sometimes as well. So that's always another element around if you're trying to gain some clarity and trying to gain some understanding, being able to share helps. But if you're not used to sharing, so you're wrapped up with all these thoughts that are going in your head, which you're trying to figure yourself out, but you're also not used to sharing. So it's like you've got like a double, I guess it's a double way of two things you need to get over for you to gain for what you really need to, to gain clarity, which is sharing, you struggle with. How do you kind of overcome that kind of hurdle where it's like, especially I'm going to, I'm going to stereotypical, but with guys in particular, where we don't tend to talk and share about our feelings, but yet we think a lot, but we don't say what's really, really going on inside of us. How do we get over that stereotype and that I don't want to open my mouth and share, even though not it might help me. And, but then if I say something, how are they going to receive this? And do I really want to do that to all those different thoughts, like you said, that cycle that goes all yeah. the way through. I think writing, writing is the best because you can always tear it up. But writing, especially with your hand, as opposed to typing, engages your brain in a way that you're not going to get that kind of clarity from uh, typing. Not to say you shouldn't type. So you can write out. You don't have to edit yourself. It's just you and you can throw it out. Okay. So you don't have to worry about embarrassing yourself in front of you. So just write however it comes out. Maybe sometimes you'll write a dialogue between two parts of yourself. Maybe sometimes you face up, this one's an and this one's a good, you know, just whatever. But to get into the practice of daily writing, you cannot go wrong. You may, depending upon your other skill sets and interests, you may turn it into something that could be a useful way to express something, whether for yourself or in communication with others or creatively in your work, whatever that might be. But even on its own merit, you will be shocked if you haven't tried it to see how much you are able to tell yourself in a short time. Just know that Lots of it can be just like nothing, scribble, 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 but then you may get a couple of words and it's like, 
wow, bingo. It's not about quantity. It's just about the process of doing it. It's almost like clearing your head, clearing your desktop. Just get it out there, and then you'll figure out the next thing. And when it comes to opening up with other people, really ask yourself, is there really nobody who I feel comfortable trying to process this with even before I have my answers? And if indeed you don't feel safe, then okay. But maybe through the process of writing, you'll get a little more clarity. And that extra clarity will give you the confidence to talk about it with another person because you don't want to sound like you're all over the place. But just know that that fear of being all over the place or not clear or weak or it's not masculine and all of those kinds of things. So what? Okay, so let's say it's really weak. It's really weak to tell you these things that I doubt about myself. Two points. One is, those aren't your only thoughts. Part of you feels that way at times. And then the other half of it is, so what? Those are feelings. Feelings are real, but the feelings don't represent your totality. You have a zillion feelings. You have feelings of grandiosity. You have feelings of being a nothing and everything in between. Don't let them tell you, you know, that they're capable of hurting you. They're not bullies. Feelings <laughs> beat you up. One of the core concepts that you talk around, um, in the TRL is around the cult of culture. Mm-hmm. What is the cult of culture? Because I think it's relevant right now, in particular in the times we're living in. So I wanted to delve a little bit into that. Well, the cult of culture is the constant onslaught of noise, negative messages, and lies, and all advertising, all the things that teach all of us that we're not good enough. And we all learn the same lesson. We all know what good enough is, and we fits the bill. I mean, that's why we're buying soap, because we smell. You know, that's why we're buying products. That's why we're going to certain places, so that we can be less defective. So on some level, all of us know that this is ridiculous. It's stupid. It's not real. But it's so constant. It's so insidious, and we see it played out in who gets to succeed. So that you can't deny that even though it's ridiculous and it doesn't matter in terms of what a human being is, it it still has its juice. So whatever we can do to separate ourselves from the things that have happened to us and the things that have been told to us about ourselves that don't ring true, that are not true, that are destructive, the more we become who we really are and have access to our passion, our purpose, you know, our drive, and the ability to manifest whatever we're here to do. But then we live in a world where a lot of identity has been built up from, let's say it starts with let's say your, your parents. So your parents, and then you go to school 
And then around the school, you got your friends and then you now have students in the mix, social media, and then you now go into the world of work. And if all those experiences you've had from a very young age, the story that you've told yourself has been, they told you you're not good enough. Your teachers told you you're not good enough to reinforce that. And then you're looking at social media and that's telling you you're not good enough because you're comparing yourself to other people. And then you go to the world. So all that's just been all you know, rewriting a new story, a new narrative, looking at the world in a different lens is very hard to do. Oh, it's, it's really hard. And, but the other thing is, it's not just all you know, it's all everybody knows. So all of these people, even people who are saying malicious things or doing malicious things as a result of, you know, the way all of this is impacting them, they're victims of it. We are all at the dictation of these negative forces. And yes, it is hard in one sense to rewrite your story, but it's not as though these external things have completely taken over your mind. We also have the benefit because of it, of instant knowledge about anything in any time. We also have the ability to get online and look in the eyes of a brilliant person we never would have met, like you, (laughs) and connect in a glorious, real way. So we have the good and the bad mixed together, and we still have an experience of ourselves to build upon. It's not like we are just, you know, an object that this cult of culture made. So I think it makes it easier to recognize when things fit and when they don't. So, you know, for instance, do I feel safe talking to other people about my vulnerabilities? Well, I can ask myself and where I am right now, my answer is going to be yes or no. But it's not like yourself is absent. Yourself is being the noise is overwhelming your own voice to yourself, I think. I'm curious, as a mother. How do you help your child navigate the cult of culture so their sense of identity is not, it's not wrapped up in there? I think it's, you know, whatever issues that arise for your child because of inevitably the ways they don't fit in or the ways that they experience not being seen and and respected as children want to be. I think you just have to respond to that and tell the truth. Like, this is total BS. And this is what we, you know, this is what we have to overcome. Or maybe your friends didn't like it when you said or did that because it hurt their feelings because of this or that. I mean, I think it's just the way you would navigate with your child through learning anything. You know, the world is not all safe. There's a lot. It's like the talk that, African-Americans have to give their teenage boys. It's a terrible reality to think that we have to take children and teach them to anticipate cruelty and unimaginable threat. But we do. How much has your faith helped you in the world Judaism? I never had any Jewish education as a child because, like everything else, the answer was always no, because you had to pay. I'm sure we weren't the poorest people on the planet, 
but you could have fooled me. So not having learned dogma made me undefensive about about learning. And everything that I did learn, which was as an adult, has been very resonant in terms of the values and the beliefs and volunteerism and helping others and just how deeply embedded the idea of Sadaka, which is, you know, giving back and, and to keep to um and healing the world. But as far as the style of teaching or a sermon, I hate that format. It just it, it goes over my head. It bores me. I don't want to sit down and stand up. Sit down and stand up. Have it be in a foreign language. If I'm in the conversation, I am right there. And I love learning these ideas, but I don't like the repetition and all of these kinds of ways of just being in the box that doesn't, it it just doesn't speak to me. So I think I sort of developed my own way of relating to my spirituality. There's something around not being confined to the rules or the ways or religion, ways of this is how it should be done, more around the principles and the ideologies and what they stand for and being able to take those and hold those. Yeah. Every religion basically says do unto others. So my dream is that, and I've seen it too many times to doubt that it's possible, but, you know, I think everyone should keep their heritage and their faith and the beauty of you know, what they've come from, where they've come from. But there's a higher place, which is where we've all come from. You know, aside from all of our divisions, we have this desperate need to come together as one and to recognize, whether you want to think of it as one spirituality, you know, that has, it's it's beyond religion. It's beyond what we think. It's beyond facts that we know. It's just goodness and healing and helping each other and living in wonder, beauty. So live in wonder and beauty of the world we live in, the world's been created, and to have a connection with each other because we were built and created for relationships. Well, that's, that's the way I see things anyway. That's the way I say things. Well, that's how God kind of created us. If saying something deep to someone and they nod and you feel it because you're present with each other and you're reading each other's space, if that's not holy, what is? That connection, there are so many things that have to happen in order for the two of us, you know, 8,000 miles away, 6,000, whatever, far different time zone, all the different things in our lives that had to converge for this moment to occur, where we have a conversation about something beyond ourselves that we also identify with and feel passionate love for, and to have that nod and that smile. I'm done. That's good for my day. (laughs) I love that. There's a beauty and a simplicity to it of how much of a difference we can all make to each other in 
with the smallest of ways that can leave a, that can leave a lasting impact on other people. So that's uh, really really like that. The question I always wrap up with is when you think about leadership and how we either lead ourselves and lead other people, how do you define leadership? I don't know if it's how I would define it, but what I would certainly include is that to be a good leader, you have to be willing to stay connected to your own vulnerability. Because it's in that vulnerability, by showing it, that you make it okay for other people to come to you and be real. We made a mistake here. I don't think I really understood what I was, whatever that needs to be, so that you can be a good parent slash team leader slash inspiration, safe place. We want our leaders to inspire us to trust ourselves, but to check in. Because if you have people who are following, they're not building. To have people that are trusting their own instincts, understanding the parameters, and building upon that, now you're growing something. And I think a good leader wants to grow more leaders and more and more ideas that they wouldn't have thought of on their own. Love that. There's a lot to think about in this conversation. Now you've got me, the power of vulnerability, the power of openness, of being able to share one story. And I really appreciate you sharing, sharing yours and just delving a little bit into who you are and how you do things, how you approach things. And I think now more than ever, I keep on saying now more than ever, there is a need and a yearning for people to be able to understand each other on on a deeper level that goes below the surface. And this is one way of being able to do that by sharing the different stories. Like you said, it's not everything you have to open up about, but there's certain stories that we all have to tell that the more we can do that, the more we can connect and see past a lot of the barriers that we currently have right now. And I want to add, you can always tell your story to yourself. Don't disregard that. And don't think that healing the feelings is the same as telling the story. Every time you write it, you're going to see something anew. Thank you very much, Sheree. All the information around um, Sheree, the work with the narrative method, all that information will be in the bio. So you can find a lot more about her. You can tap into the amazing work that you just heard a little snippet about today but i um, really really appreciate your time i can't say enough about how much i appreciate yours thank you this is everyday leadership <laughs>